Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, February 1st, 2018, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Leslie Ombres. Four students and a teacher were injured following a shooting at Salvador Castro Middle School in Westlake this morning. A 12-year-old girl is in custody and has been identified as a potential suspect. One of the students was shot in the head. He's in critical but stable condition. Trauma surgeon Aaron Strumwasser says the boy is lucky the wound isn't worse. Gunshot wounds to the head are very, very lethal. Uh, the vast majority of them do not do well. In this particular circumstance, though, this child was extremely lucky. The trajectory of the bullet did not hit any vital structures that were structures that were an immediate threat to life. Seventh grader Benjamin was there when one of his classmates was shot. She was bleeding. Her um, blood was all over the place. Everyone was looking for napkins, and I was in the classroom. They took us downstairs to see if anyone, uh, they were interrogating us, if anyone had a weapon. Two victims have been discharged and two are expected to make full recoveries. Authorities are unsure of how the suspect got the weapon. The numbers are out on Los Angeles homicides for last year. Camilla Rios tells us what the police department data shows. Overall, the number of murders in Los Angeles was down last year. 282 homicides in the city. That makes it the second lowest it's been since 1967, when the population was much smaller. 2013 still sits at the bottom with 251 homicides in Los Angeles. LAPD Chief Charlie Beck says the department efforts to combat gang violence have made a difference. These things are proven to work, and so we need to keep going down that path. Then we, we need to continue to do what the city is beginning to do and reduce the number of people that live on our streets. Beck says the data shows that homicides impact some communities more than others. The majority of victims were young men. 90% were men. Almost 60% were between 18 and 35, and 84% had an education level of high school or less. Fortunately, it adversely impacts uh, certain people who are also adversely impacted by, uh, you know, just a litany of, of social issues. And, and, and I think that it's important that, that we recognize that none of us rises uh, when any of us sink, you know, and, and, and we are all responsible, in my opinion, uh, to make sure that, that those that have the least uh, get the most that we can give them. Beck says that 171 homicides were related to gangs and 44 to homelessness. For Annenberg Media, I'm Camilla Rios. Recreational marijuana was legalized in California on the first day of this year. But what about those who are convicted of marijuana crimes before January 1st? San Francisco's district attorney says criminal marijuana convictions will be reduced or dismissed in his city. It will affect 3,000 misdemeanors and 5,000 felonies dating back decades. Finn Fu asked students here at USC if they think those convictions should now be expunged. For the most part, the minor offenses, carrying it on your person, being caught smoking it in a public area, I think now that it is legalized, it's a little hypocritical for those to still stand. So in those cases, no, I don't think it should carry over. But in some more serious cases, I think those still do carry weight. I mean, at that point in time where they did the crime, it was still illegal. So I think that they should yeah, remain as it is because 
they did something wrong at that point in time. Now it's legalized. It doesn't change that they did something bad in the past. Yeah, yeah I think so, if, especially if they're in a state that it's legal in, because uh, otherwise it'd just be hypocritical for them not to continue to not punish people when they did in the past. I think that especially with the overcrowded prisons that we have, people that were previously caught in possession of marijuana should be let go on um, probation or something else. The laws have changed, so they deserve to get their case heard out. The law is different now, and they're incarcerated for something that's no longer illegal. I don't feel like they should no longer be viewed as a criminal. We heard from Brielle Brack, Jan Philip Wesseman, Tristan Gordon, Amelia Lind, and Jesse Ray Buford. UC students marched alongside the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees this morning on UCLA's campus. Here's Katherine Leibarger, president of the AFS-CME Local Union. The point of the picket today is to make sure that the public can see that the university understands that frontline workers here are united. We're united around demands that there be safe staffing. Safe staffing impacts patient safety, worker safety, and honestly, student safety. We'll have more on the UCLA protests later on from where we are. Tonight, we'll see partly cloudy skies with lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, the clouds will stick around in the morning with sunny skies. It'll be around 70 at the beach and get up to the 80s inland. Right now, it is 73 outside the Media Center at USC. Fundraising efforts are picking up steam in race for California Governor. Alexandria Mason has details. So far, Democratic candidate Gavin Newsom has surpassed his opponents, raising $19 million towards his campaign. He's raised more than his seven opponents combined. The late Assembly Speaker Jess Unruh said money is the mother's milk of politics. But it isn't the only thing that is important. That's USC professor Sherry Bebich Jeffy. She points to the 2010 gubernatorial race. Meg Whitman's Republican candidate spent something like $180 million, um, most of it her own money, I believe, against Jerry Brown, who had a very, a relatively small expenditure. She lost. The second highest fundraiser was former state treasurer John Chang with over $7 million, followed by former L.A. mayor Antonio Villagarosa with over $6 million. Brandenburg Media I'm Alexandria Mason. The White House says President Trump will release the GOP memo about FBI misconduct. The memo was written by Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee. It discusses possible misconduct during the FBI's investigation into Russian ties to Trump's presidential campaign. Trojan Advocates for Political Progress President Alec Vandenberg says releasing the memo would only be a distraction. Outside of what the House Republicans believe. Um, there's a general consensus of what the best course of action is, and that's not releasing the memo. Um, so even just this morning, the third highest ranking member of the Senate delegation for the Republicans came out against releasing the memo. Of course, the FBI is against this release, and a lot of Democrats and other politicians are against it because they think it's going to be a distraction from a real investigation that's trying to get to some um, real conclusion. On the other side of the aisle, USC's Members of Young Americans for Freedom released a statement to Annenberg Media, saying the memo should be released. 
They said that Americans have the right to decide for themselves whether information is truthful, and the memo could shed light on an ongoing issue. It's 7 after the hour. I'm Leslie Ambris. Thank you, Leslie. Coming up on From Where We Are, we'll tell you what Super Bowl Sunday has in store. And later, we'll premiere a new story series. Find out about the veins of L.A. in Street Smarts. Warren Olney has been a journalist for 52 years. He's worked in print, broadcast, and radio, and is the only two-time winner of the Los Angeles Society of Professional Journalists Distinguished Journalist Award. Match Volume producer Thomas Carroll sat down with him and asked him to look back over his storied career. I'm Warren Olney, and I'm now a podcaster at KCRW Radio. I just want to welcome my guest, Warren Olney, familiar voice for many people here in the Los Angeles area and outside of it, formerly of Which Way LA, To The Point, which is now a weekly podcast, is that correct? Correct. To The Point, weekly podcast put out by KCRW, home, uh, a home that you've been inside of for 25 years? How yeah, long? 26, I think. Yeah. 26 years. I started out at the Sacramento Bee in 1965. The Bee was owned by the McClatchy family, and they decided to have a broadcast bureau at the state capitol. And they got down to me. I had been there for eight months, and no other self-respecting journalist at the Bee would take the job because they were so disrespectful of broadcasting. They got down to me. They said, well, double your salary, which was like going from one to two. And I I agreed to do that. So I got to learn the broadcasting business and the state capital at the same time uh, at that stage. And then the first big story I covered was uh, Ronald Reagan's election in 1966. So you've lived in many journalistic worlds. Yeah. If you had to pick one, radio, broadcast, print, or they're all different? They're all different. Uh, I'm old enough that I actually grew up with radio. And I used to uh, have to hold the the radio under the covers when I was supposed to be going to sleep as a as a kid. Television I loved because you could do little movies, and at least you did then. Um, I think that they have kind of lost that mode of using the medium, except on 60 Minutes and some of the PBS programs. But I loved doing that. I really really did. However, um, television news, commercial television news, got so superficial that I didn't want to do it anymore after a while. I want to talk to you specifically about your time at KCRW. Obviously, you're still there, but... The history is that we started Which Way L.A. in the aftermath of the Rodney King riot, civil disturbance, uprising, whatever you choose to call it. And it continued up until just a couple of years ago. And but that and, started as yeah. a as a one off, correct? Because you were sort of looking to move out of television, and you got the opportunity from the from a producer at KCRW saying, "Hey, come on for an hour. We need to talk about this as a city." I thought I was going to be there for one night to do interviews about the riot, the civil. You always have to call it the riot, the civil disturbance, and the uprising. Different people uh, still call it different things. That's how how diverse our community is. So. I didn't know it, but the woman who ran the station had in mind doing a continuing program because she had never done any local news. She only did. Um, she was only interested in national and interna- international news. She used to read the New York Times on the air. So I was the first time that they'd done any local news, and I was well known because I had been in television for so long. And sure enough, an audience turned up, and we did a lot of stuff that was really. Uh, quite interesting and quite challenging. It was real journalism, and we would get people together, 
cops with different points of view and and people who had to deal with the cops and uh, um, you know government officials from different departments of government that were all supposed to be dealing with the same subject who'd never met each other you know and it was very revealing in terms of how government really worked it was journalism and it was a lot of fun and finally we realized couldn't do that forever and so we started doing local and national news on that program because in Los Angeles here those are local stories because everybody in the world is here in Los Angeles. After every program, I always called every guest, and I still do. Uh, and if you go into broadcasting or any kind of journalism, remember this, that if you call back and say thank you, even if the person feels that they have been mistreated on your program, they will come back again. It's a courtesy. I didn't realize it. I first started out doing it because I thought it was... Uh, a nice thing to do, and I appreciated them being on. And I needed some uh, feedback because I'd never done radio. I'd only done television. And famous people have called me back and said, I'll be on your program anytime because no one has ever called me. And these are people who are on the major programs, you know, around the country all the time. So it's something to remember. Well, I better get your number before we uh, end yeah. the interview. So anyway, right. <laughs> yeah, I want to call. I think the most important thing to remember about journalism is that it is a public service and that it is important to this democracy. And that uh, it is part of your responsibility to uh, not only find what's important, but uh, to make it interesting to the people who need to know about it. And uh, if you have that in your mind at all times, I think your work improves and you begin to learn how to do it. And you begin to get a response and, and people say, well, I'd, I didn't know that, but thanks for telling me. And that's the most satisfying thing as a journalist that you can ever hear. Thank you so much for spending the time to uh, talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for putting up with my long answers. That was award-winning journalist Warren Olney in conversation with Match Volume producer Thomas Carroll. Sexual assault victim advocates in California and across the nation are pushing for transparency and reform in rape kit testing. Julia Gibson walks us through the typical path of a rape kit from its initial collection. The Hertzberg-Davis Forensic Science Center sits at the edge of campus at California State University, Los Angeles. The building is slickly designed, all reflective windows surrounded by trees and flowers. You wouldn't guess from the outside, but in the basement is a stockpile of criminal evidence, including sexual assault examination kits from all over Los Angeles County. Robert Taylor is assistant director of the laboratory here. He oversees testing of the kits. So this is the standard kit, and it's used at the SART centers. SART stands for Sexual Assault Response Team. Robert brings out a large white plastic bag. It's slightly smaller than a paper grocery bag. He unpacks it on his desk. It's the standardized rape kit used throughout L.A. County. It's full of envelopes, containing the materials needed to complete an exam. It's, it's, it's not high-tech. We have swabs, sterilized swabs, you know, Q-tips, basically. After an assault, a victim will usually go to a SART center for an exam. The exam involves multiple steps and a lot of swabbing and combing. Step three is an external genital sample. Mm -hmm. And once again, it's slides, swabs, so they're taking the area around the... Um, genital areas and sampling for semen, saliva. For us, step four is a pubic combings. Um, and there's a, inside is a brush. And once again, um, 
brush off hairs that are, are found. After collection, the SART Center hands the kit over to police. By the law now, you have five days to get the kit to a, a law enforcement. And law enforcement has 20 days to get it to the lab. Over at the lab, the testing begins. There's a screening report that's going to say, okay, I found saliva, semen, a profile is developed. We run that, and if it's an unknown profile, then it's reviewed for suitability for uploading to CODIS. CODIS, that stands for Combined DNA Index System. It's a database that helps criminalists and investigators identify offenders. That testing and logging needs to happen within 120 days of receiving the kit. In 2015, the Department of Justice created the Sexual Assault Forensic Evidence Tracking Database, or SAFE-T. Its purpose is to track the status of all sexual assault evidence kits. Los Angeles has this accountability system, as well as one for tracking matches in CODIS. It's called CHOP, the CODIS Hit Outcome Project. Both CHOP and SAFE-T make communication clearer between everyone who works a case, so nothing slips through the cracks. We've had cases where We've sent an email or a letter to an investigator and said, here's the hit. And then that investigator is on vacation or has been moved to an assignment and, and nothing's been done. So this kind of guarantees that they, we have someone that's accountable for that hit. When DNA is logged properly, there's a higher chance of catching a rapist. This was true for Natasha Alexenko, a sexual assault survivor and founder of the advocacy group Natasha's Justice Project. I myself uh, was um, raped and robbed at gunpoint um, by a stranger while I was a, co a college student in New York City mm -hmm. in, um, in 1993. It was um, life-altering. It, it, it derailed my life. Almost 20 years later, the DNA from her kit got a hit in CODIS. Her assailant had been arrested in Las Vegas for jaywalking and assaulting a police officer. We know that... that um, rapists continue to commit the crime. And if you, you know, if you load that, that DNA into CODIS, oftentimes you find that it hits to other assaults and sometimes just other crimes. Members of law enforcement, like Bob Taylor, are trying to make the same thing possible for future victims. The LA County Sheriff's Department and LAPD, we do every kit that's collected and, and that is submitted. And to have a hit and come back and identify the person is very rewarding. Officials hope that statewide use of SAFER will result in more matches, more convictions, and more justice for survivors. For Annenberg Media, I'm Julia Gibson. The UC Regents are feeling the heat these days. At their meeting last week, they voted to put off a discussion on more tuition hikes until May. And today, workers and students held protests at UC campuses throughout the state. Kristen DeLeon attended the protest at UCLA this morning. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! The protests were organized by the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 3299. It's the largest UC employee union. 
Catherine Leibarger is the president of the union local. She says labor unions are out here for several reasons. We're here for dignity, security, fairness, and equality. We just can't afford to live down here. Uh, the other thing is every year the health care costs go up, everything goes up, so we'd be cutting, getting a cut of pay every year for the next five years. So that's why we're out here today. That was Alan Hutchins. He's a biomedical technician at Ronald Reagan Hospital at UCLA. And we have the same problems we have here we have at all the other UCs. It's a global issue. The union is in contract negotiations with the UC system. The main issues in the negotiations are wage and pension increases. The UC Board of Regents is considering another tuition hike of 2.7%. That comes after a 2.5% increase just last year. AFSME and students say they are being hurt by fiscal mismanagement by UC administrators. As audits showed last year, one audit showed that UC had developed a $175 million slush fund. That's enough money to take a student tuition increase off the table. It's enough money to insource, that is to hire contracted valet workers into full-time decent jobs at UC, and UC has refused to do that. And it just doesn't feel like the UC regions are actually bargaining in good faith anymore. And uh, so now it feels that like we actually like you know have to be like a little bit louder about like what our actual needs are. And um, we want to make this university work for everybody. You know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to create quality public education to be a good engine for the California economy. And uh, we're doing our part. Uh, we would like to see the UC regions do their part. Max Belasco works at UCLA's law school. Other labor and student unions joined AFSCME in solidarity, including the University Professional and Technical Employees, the UC Student Workers Union, and the UAW, which is the Union for Postdoctoral Researchers. So, yeah, everybody here is in the same boat, so that's why we're all out here. Do you think that um, picketing will make a big difference? I think, I think it's a good way to show that we're um, in support and that um, there is like, a lot of attention from the community and from students, etc. So I think it's a good way to show like numbers, etc. to both UC management but also everybody else who is here on campus. Right. And it, it brought change when, when postdocs uh, rallied, right? Yeah, we had a couple of like actions or a contract campaign um, as well as like other forms of support and yeah, it's, it's good. It's especially nice because it's like sunny out, etc. So <laughs> it's a good, uh, good lunchtime solidarity action. Yeah. Well, the UC regents did not talk to reporters today, but they passed out a written statement. It says the UCs have offered AFSCME fair wage increases, quality health and retirement benefits, and professional development opportunities. For Annenberg Media, I'm Christine DeLeon. On Sunday, football fans around the country will watch the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles face off in the Super Bowl. I'm joined by our sports journalist, Sam Dodge, who's here to talk about what to expect. So, Sam, are the Pats going to take up another Super Bowl win this year? I, I think that's safe to assume. You, you look at Tom Brady, and he's been to he's been to twelve conference championship games. This is his eighth Super Bowl at this point. He's won five of them, and you're looking at an Eagles team just historically kind of 
not the greatest franchise, the lovable losers of Philadelphia and whatnot. And you just have that experience versus a second-year quarterback in Carson Wentz. I think you just take that alone, and you're looking at an easy victory for the Patriots. Mm. What are some of the challenges they'll have to look out for? Well, Philadelphia has a very good pass rush. Um, You look at a guy like Brandon Graham. uh, He's been really upping his production. He's got double-digit sacks this year. And those type of teams have given Tom Brady problems in the past you you look at like the giant super bowls and if you can produce a rush with just four people that's an opportunity for the patriots and tom brady to kind of falter and not play as well offensively so are there any players we should keep an eye on this sunday well you look at carson wentz um you uh he's injured at this point uh so we aren't really considering him so nick Foles is your backup quarterback coming in um you got him and then you got Tom Brady and, as I said, Brandon Graham. Uh, definitely look out for guys like Danny Amendola, a lot of these small receivers that have been really helping out Tom Brady. And Tom Brady and them in a symbiotic relationship have, make, have been just making beautiful music on the football field the last few years. Perfect. Thanks for the update, Sam. We've been speaking with sports journalist Sam Dodge. Kickoff is at 3.30 Sunday. As the Super Bowl approaches, protesting players again are at center stage. At last weekend's Pro Bowl game, some of the NFL's marquee players shared personal stories about racial profiling by law enforcement. The Associated Press surveyed 56 of the 59 black NFL players at the Pro Bowl. They all said they, or someone they knew, had experienced racial profiling. Jacksonville Jaguars defensive tackle Malik Jackson said, you can ask any black man out here, and the answer is yes. Today is the start of Black History Month, and it's Freedom Day. Laura Congasaloma went out to hear what freedom means to people around the USC campus. Freedom means free for everybody. You can go anywhere, do anything, no prejudice. Freedom means the ability to do what you want, but with limitations so not to hurt other people. Coming to college has really redefined freedom for me on a very micro scale, nothing like huge and political in that sense. Just having the freedom to choose what you do, things like time management. I lived in Hong Kong for a year and I did some trips into China. And in China, I was constantly asked why I was there and asked for my passport. For the first time in my life, I kind of felt like I didn't have the freedom to be where I was. With uh, our current administration, I've definitely seen people who have had to shift their, their life. What kind of situations have they been? Fear of racist backlash from just being who they are. How do you think Americans should celebrate Freedom Day? Uh, celebrate the thing that Martin Luther King de- did for us. Exercising their own personal freedom, I think, is the best way to really celebrate. Protest, I think, is a great way to do it. Demonstration, being able to voice people's own opinion is a great thing, even if it's uh, a viewpoint that I don't agree with. I, I fully cherish the fact that we have the freedom to say what we want. I think it's, it shouldn't be any different than any other day, really. I think freedom is something that should be celebrated 365 days a year. We heard from Alvin Hicks, Kate Wagenrich, Nicholas Show, and Greg Forstner. If you live in Los Angeles, chances are you do a lot of commuting. Ever wonder how the city's 50,000 streets got here? Today on Street Smarts, Kaylee Wells looks at L.A.'s longest, Sepulveda Boulevard. 
The year is 1769, and Europeans are exploring California. They're headed west toward the coast, but they're discouraged by the steep cliffs between them and the ocean. So they hang a right and pass through the Santa Monica Mountains into the San Fernando Valley. Fast forward 12 years when Francisco Sepulveda and his family pack up their home in Mexico and head north to settle in a new Mexican pueblo called Los Angeles. Francisco's grandson will later serve as LA's last Mexican mayor before Americans claim the land. The Sepulveda Pass through the Santa Monica Mountains is named after his family. That street name can be heard every day in traffic alerts, songs, and even Tiny Toons episodes. This is Sepulveda Boulevard. Sepulveda Boulevard stretches from Long Beach, under the runways of LAX, and up to the northern edge of the San Fernando Valley. It extends more than 40 miles, making it LA's longest road. It served as one of LA's most vital transportation corridors. That is until the 60s when the 405 came along to help shuttle more people. Today, the hundreds of thousands that travel through there daily opt for the 405, making it the busiest and most congested freeway in the United States. But throughout its path, Sepulveda Boulevard is always nearby, weaving its way around the interstate and through the west side and carrying with it a small piece of LA's history. With Street Smarts, I'm Kaylee Wells. Today marks the 14th anniversary of Justin Timberlake's last halftime appearance. He performed with Janet Jackson, but the day lives in infamy. After he exposed Jackson's breasts during the performance, it was known forever after as Nipplegate. He's back on the Super Bowl stage this Sunday, but Timberlake assured fans it won't be happening this time around. That's it for From Where We Are. Today's show was produced by Kaylee Wells. Our associate producer is Alexandria Mason. Thanks to Charlotte Scott and Drew Jones for help on today's stories. Chris Perfett is our board operator. The theme music was composed by Derek Renfro. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday. I'm Nadia Caldwell. Thank you.